This morning we're talking about talking to God. And it's a very important subject for us to discuss because a lot of people don't look at prayer the way Jesus looked at prayer. What I mean by that is to say that a lot of people look at prayer as just a last-ditch effort to change their circumstances. And this is borne out by some very interesting statistics. There was a study that came out in 2004. I realize that's getting to be a long time ago now, almost 20 years ago. But still, there were some very interesting numbers in that study. It said that according to one report, 30% of atheists admitted that they prayed sometimes. Now, why would an atheist pray? It also conducted another study that said, in another study, 17% of unbelievers said that they prayed on a regular basis. So why would 30% of atheists pray unless they have bought into an idea that prayer is a last-ditch effort to change the circumstances? Even some Christians will rely on prayer just to get out of trouble or change their circumstances. I've tried everything else. I don't know what else to do. I'll throw a prayer up to God. What harm can it do? Do you look at prayer that way? A lot of people do. You would be in the company with a lot of people if that's the way that you looked at it. Now, the obvious problem with the view that prayer is a means by which we can talk God into changing the circumstances uh, to go in our direction is numerous. Uh, For one thing, why would God allow a system in which a sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful creator yields his will to the will of ignorant, finite, mortal human beings? Now, why would God build that system into the world? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Sometimes we'll say, be careful what you pray for, You just might get it. Now, what do we mean by that? We mean that we don't know what's good for us all the time. Only God knows what's best. Sometimes what we wish will be the worst thing, will be our undoing. Furthermore, if God does respond to petitions by changing circumstances, we know that he doesn't respond to all petitions. That's um, a problem for us. Uh, Philip Yancey quotes a philosophy professor in his book on prayers who said this, if God can influence the course of events, then a God who is willing to cure colds and provide parking spaces, but is not willing to prevent Auschwitz and Hiroshima is morally repugnant. Since Hiroshima and Auschwitz did occur, one must infer that God cannot or has a policy never to influence the course of worldly events. That comes from an unbeliever, and we're not surprised that he doesn't believe in prayer, that he thinks the whole idea is silly. But what is a little unsettling is he's touching on a problem with the idea that we pray to God just to get things to change, to change in our favor. Because we know that all prayers uttered to change things are not answered. And some for lighter things are answered, while some for heavier things are not answered. How do we explain that if that's all that prayer is? Furthermore, how does one manage conflicting requests, such as two enemies praying for one another's demise? Who wins that battle? Or a farmer who is uh, praying for rain, 
while a person living on a floodplain in the same place is praying for sunny skies. How does God manage that if all prayer is, is just petitions to change the circumstances to make our lives better according to what we think might be better? It's got to be deeper than that. It's got to be something more than that. There has to be other reasons for talking to God. And in our text, Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and following, Jesus tells us that talking to God is more about relationship than the benefits. Or it might be better to say that the relationship is the benefit when talking to God. But first he has to dispense with some common misunderstandings about prayer. And the first one will come from the Jewish culture and the second from the Gentile culture. So that's how we'll structure the lesson as we look at Matthew chapter 6. First, we'll, we'll discuss how the Jews talk to God. Secondly, we'll talk about how the Gentiles talk to God. And then we'll finally analyze how Jesus talked to God. Let's start with the Jews. How did they talk to God? Well, certain elements, I wouldn't say this with too broad a brush, but certain elements of Jewish culture, namely the Pharisees, use prayer to change their circumstances through people. I'll say that again. They used prayer to change their circumstances. So they bought into that idea that prayer was to change your circumstances. But they used prayer to change their circumstances through people. Look at uh, verse 5. What does Jesus say? When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites... For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. What's ironic about this is that their views on prayer are actually less spiritual than the Gentiles. And I'll say more about that later. But keep that in mind. This is not a very spiritual way of looking at prayer. Jesus gives an example in Luke chapter 18 with a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. In the prayer, he paints the picture of a Pharisee who is boasting in his prayer of all his good deeds. And he makes a very interesting statement there in Luke 18. He says that the Pharisee was praying standing by himself. Now there's disagreement among translators about whether that should be translated he prayed standing by himself or he prayed to himself. But practically, the outcome is the same. Either he was standing by himself or he was praying to himself. Either way, God was not involved in this prayer. This prayer was strictly on a horizontal level. It was uttered by his mouth and it was for the benefit, and I say that sarcastically, of the tax collector's ears and the ears of anybody standing around. The prayer was not directed to God. It was about himself, and it was directed to others, because he was trying to change the circumstances through people with his words in prayer. The hypocrites that Jesus condemns in the text did not pray to communicate with God, but their purpose was to be seen by others. And what were they trying to control? Why, they were trying to control what... A lot of spokesmen try to control public perception. That's what they wanted. That's actually the overall context of Matthew chapter 6. It begins in verse 1 with a general statement. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people 
in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. In verse 2, he turns to their giving. Why were they giving? To change the public perception uh, by being seen by others. And then in verse 5, as we've seen, he talks about their prayer habits on the street corners, out loud to be heard by others. What were they doing? They were trying to change the public perception. You go on down to verse 16, he turns to fasting. Same thing. They were disfiguring their faces, making it obvious that they hadn't eaten in uh, so many hours or so many days so that through people they could change their circumstances, change the public perception about them. This ties into what's probably the thematic statement of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, verse 20. If you want to go back there, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What was the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? It was strictly horizontal and it was self-fulfilling, self-serving. They were practicing the righteousness just to be seen by men so that they could change the public perception or control the public perception about them. The same thing is done in politics. That's what the White House does with their press secretaries and their press releases. That's what governments do with their respective press is they want to use words to craft a mentality or an idea in the public that may or may not represent the truth. It's Orwellian. We have a word for that, Orwellian, from George Orwell's book, 1984, where Big Brother had thought police and would try to change people's thoughts by forcing some words out of the circulation and new words into circulation, thinking that the words or the language will shape public perception. Now, can that really be done? I think in the short run, it might work. In the long run, the words eventually come to match the concepts. People are smart. They understand concepts. They think in concepts. They don't think in words. This was an idea advanced by MIT linguist Steven Pinker back in the 90s after the LA Times infamously released a style guide that took 150 words out of circulation in an effort to try to change the public circulation. Pinker said, you can't really do that with words. Concepts always overrule the words. And this is what Jesus is saying as well. You don't have to be bamboozled by these Pharisees who are using words to change their circumstances through the people, to change the public perception. If you go down in the Sermon on the Mount to chapter 7, listen to what he says beginning in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. What are the, what's the sheep's clothing of the false prophets? It's their words. It's their outward behavior. It's the externals, right? It's the way they present themselves. He says, don't look at the presentation. What do we look at? Verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits, by what they're actually teaching and how they're actually living. So he says in verse, verse 17, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree, tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Look at their life, look at the fruit of their life, 
And that's how you size up whether or not a person is telling you the truth. So what the Pharisees were doing was hypocritical and it wasn't going to work in the long run. And we all saw right through them because Jesus tells us what they're doing. Trying to manipulate the public with shows of religion in order to hold on to power and privilege. Jesus said in Matthew 23, verses 5 and following, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. That's what Jesus means by saying they have received their reward. They want to shape public perception with their words through prayer, well, in the short term, that's what they get. They get greetings. They get honorable seats at the banquets. But isn't life so much more than that? It's all so hollow. It's all so empty. There's got to be more to life than that. The way the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day talk to God can't be all there is about prayer. So let's move in the second place to the Gentiles, to a different culture during Jesus' day. He touched on this culture as well. Let's talk about how the Gentiles talk to God. For the Gentiles, prayer was also about control. But in their case, they only tried to control their circumstances through the supernatural. This is why I said before that the Gentiles had a more spiritual concept of prayer than the Jews. The Jews are trying to change their circumstances through people, like the Pharisee who prayed by himself or to himself. At least the Gentiles were trying to control circumstances through the supernatural, but their idea of the supernatural was inaccurate. They didn't understand the truth about the spirit realm. So Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 7, and 8. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So he describes their prayer habits in two phrases, empty phrases and many words. Let's look at those one by one. Empty phrases means to speak with a stammer or to say the same thing over and over and over. A lot of Gentile magic was being practiced in those days. Incantations or spells for security, for profit, for wealth, for medical relief, for safety from thieves, wolves, snakes, lightning, hail, from the evil eye, it focused on attracting love interests or, or harming an enemy. And it was believed that repetition of the incantation or the words made them more powerful. They would say them over and over and over again. That's what Jesus meant by empty phrases. Many words refers to listing false deities by the worshiper, one after another, as many as the worshiper knew, to make sure that all of them are included in the hopes that at least one of them would hear and answer. So practically speaking, there's very little difference between the way the Jews talk to God and the way the Gentiles talk to God. Both of them were using prayer as a means of controlling their circumstances to benefit themselves. A very selfish way of looking at prayer. We may not be aware of it, but we do this sometimes. We use words, we use prayers to try to change circumstances in our favor. Uh, that's where 
the idea of cussing comes from. You know, we talk about cussing and that's just using bad words. But that evolved down from the idea of cursing. Cussing is just a shortened way of saying cursing. And what is cursing? It began as a prayer of disfavor towards somebody in hopes that God would answer that prayer by destroying his enemy. And so that's what's so bad about cursing, is it has its origins in hoping that God will destroy your enemy, which is not the way Christians ought to live. We're to love our enemies, not hate them and hope that they will, will be cursed. James said in James chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Look at the contrast between this Gentile philosophy on prayer, controlling our circumstances by manipulating God with our words. Think about the difference between that and Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness. The first temptation that came to Jesus, Satan said, command these stones to become bread. Use your words to alter the circumstances supernaturally so that you can eat. Now remember, Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And remember that he had the power to do that. He could have done it, fed himself, and also demonstrated his power as the Son of God. But he refused to abuse prayerful words for self-serving purposes, just to change the circumstances. Instead, his reply was a quotation from Deuteronomy. And it's recorded in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. What did he say? It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So in that case, Jesus put the word of God over and above the words of his own prayer. In the first two cases that Jesus talks about, the Jews and the Gentiles, in Matthew chapter 6, he shows that prayer is not just for controlling the circumstances around you to make your life better according to what you think your life should be. Something deeper than that. So let's turn in the third place to how Jesus talked to God. For Jesus, prayer was not about control. It was about relationship. And if anything, that means giving up control, submitting to the Father who is sovereign and mighty and who knows what's best for our lives. It's about relationship. Jesus revolutionized prayer with these words in Matthew 6. In verse 6 he says, When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In verse 9, he teaches us how to pray, beginning with these words, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. As I said, this revolutionized prayer. The first way it revolutionized prayer is it privatized it. In the Old Testament, most of the prayers were meant for public occasions. I wouldn't say that all of them were. We have some magnificent examples where Job seems to be speaking to God, but you also imagine he's probably in the presence of his friends. 
not completely private. Many of the Psalms of David appear to be private prayers. But in most of the recorded prayers in the Old Testament, they're uttered by kings or prophets or priests. On special occasions, they are meant for public ceremonies. Uh, even many of the Psalms have notations that they're meant to be, to be said in group settings. One writer even said that Jesus virtually invented private prayer here. He's revolutionizing prayer because up until this point, a lot of people thought of prayer strictly in the public sense. And Jesus is saying, you can have a private prayer life with the Father. Not only can you, but you should. And it should be continuous and it should be every single day, multiple times a day. Secondly, he tells us to pray to God as Father. I found a few references to God as Father in the Old Testament, namely in the prophecy of Isaiah, but never in an example of prayer like this. And while there are no examples of addressing God as Father in prayer in the Old Testament, Jesus does it at least 170 times. Now, this sermon was recorded in Greek, but we know that Jesus and his apostles spoke Aramaic. And the word that he probably used in Aramaic was the word Abba. And we know that because he does use that word in Mark chapter 14, verse 36. Abba is a, is an, a term of endearment that a child would use of his father. And it was unheard of to refer to God with a term so intimate, with a term that indicated such a close relationship. Until Jesus, nobody said, Abba, Father, in prayer. It's like saying, dearest Father, as opposed to an austere, distant Father. But he balances it out because he teaches us to pray, Our Father, who is in heaven, Hallowed or reverent be your name. Keeping us from going to either extreme. Because it's easy to get it unbalanced. Sometimes we can speak to God too flippantly and irreverently. Forgetting that he's in heaven. Forgetting that he is holy and just and righteous and sinless. And that we must bow down and be awe-stricken before him. But then sometimes we are so distant from him, we forget how much he loves us and cares for us and how merciful he is and how he invites us to pray to him privately in a relationship as a child to a father. Jesus is teaching us here to keep the balance intact. Our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Something special about that. Jesus revolutionized prayer by saying you can have these private prayers to the Father in heaven. And we know that that's why it made people so curious when he prayed. Why do you think the disciples came to him in Luke 11 verse 1 saying, teach us to pray? Because there was something about his prayer life that was special, that made them curious. He looked at it as a relationship, more as a, a means of control. And the more intimate the relationship with God, the more vibrant your prayer life would be. I want you to imagine with me three kinds of people. First of all, you have a business associate that you work for. 
Secondly, you have a, a close friend that you've known for many years. And thirdly, think of a spouse. Now, your conversations will differ depending on which one of those persons you're, you're talking to. Your conversation with the business associate will be goal-oriented. There'll be very little chit-chat, very little personal conversation with that because you don't know that person as well. Your conversations with your friends will be more intimate. You might share some of your burdens, your challenges, but there are a lot of things that you'll keep from your friends. But your conversations with your spouse, the one you live with, the one you love, will be the most intimate. You should be able to share your deepest secrets, ambitions, your desires, your pain with that person. Be vulnerable with that person because he or she knows you and loves you and will, will love you no matter what. Well, these three examples line up with three kinds of prayer that you read about in the Bible. There's petition... There's confession, and there's adoration. Petition is the attempt for control or the desire for the change in circumstances, I should say. And that's more like the prayer, the conversation between yourself and a business partner. Confessions are confessions of sin, confessions of weakness, more vulnerability akin to a conversation with a close friend, adoration where you find someone beautiful is the most intimate form of relationship that you would have with your spouse. Your relationship with God determines how far down that classification of prayer you go. Does it stop at petitions? Do you just simply pray to God to try to change things? Or does it go deeper into confession and finally into adoration, worship, and praise? Think about your prayers. What was the last time, when was the last time you prayed? And what did you say? Were there a lot of petitions? Or was it more confession? Or did it even go to worship, adoration, and praise? Let's look at the model prayer. It's not intended to be repeated by rote to the point of meaninglessness. Uh, some people take it that way and they just say these exact words and they might say them over and over again, which is a violation of verses 7 and 8. It's obviously not meant to be repeated by rote. What Jesus is giving us here in the model prayer is a template for prayer. If you uh, get a template online, like on Microsoft Word or something, to write a business letter or a resume, you don't just take uh, that template, print it up and hand it to a prospective employer, they would think you were crazy. They'd look at it and say, type your name here instead of your name being in it. That's not what templates are for. That's not how they work. You take a template and you look at the form of it and it teaches you how to put your own words into the, the, the format. And that's what Jesus is giving us here in the model prayer. It begins with worship. Our Father who is in heaven hallowed be your name. That's followed by submission. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then petition, verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. That leads us to ask for all kinds of things. This is where you ask God, if it's his will, you've already submitted to him, to change your circumstances, but his will be done. That's followed by confession. Forgive us our debts 
as we have forgiven our debtors. And then finally, protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When you look at that, what is the model prayer about? It's not fitting for a dedication ceremony. It's not fitting for a ritual. It's not fitting to be repeated by rote over and over again. It's not overly eloquent. It's not you know, something that would be used for speeches in a king's court. It's about everyday life and everyday problems and everyday struggles. And it begins with adoration and worship and praise. And it follows by submission to the all-sovereign one who is in control. And then finally, the petitions and the confessions come. And I think that's the way we should order our prayer life. This is the way Jesus prayed. On the surface, it seems so simple, but it is so hard for us to do. So few of us do it on a regular basis. According to one ancient definition... Prayer is keeping company with God. Have you ever thought of it that way? Prayer is keeping company with God. I think there's an example of this in the movie Fiddler on the Roof, where Tevye, he he's talking to God all day long about different things. And he's talking about his triumphs, his victories, the things that go well, and the things that don't go well. God is with him always as a friend. He's keeping company with him. There's one scene where he's sitting on the roadside by his horse who's gone lame. And he says to him, I can understand it when you punish me when I'm bad or my wife because she talks too much or my daughter when she wants to go off and marry a Gentile. But what have you got against my horse? You know, would you talk to God on a daily basis about all your triumphs and all your struggles and all your problems? Or is it just a formal list of ways that he can change your life to make it better for you? Do you keep company with him? Someone might say, well, how can I stay in a dialogue with God when he doesn't talk back to me? It seems more like a soliloquy or a speech than a conversation with a father in heaven. Well, God does talk. He speaks to us through his word. And we speak to him through prayer. That's why the word of God is called living. 1 Peter 1.23. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. The word of God is living and abiding. It pierces, the writer of Hebrews says, to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerns the intentions and thoughts of the heart. You can carry the word around in your heart. It's not just black lettering on paper. This is a receptacle of the Word of God. But the Word of God is living and it's active. Do you understand that? It's meant to be read and it's meant to be digested. On one occasion, one of the prophets was told, eat this scroll. What does that mean? He wasn't literally to eat the paper he was to consume and digest God's word so that it lived within him. And so when we word the, read the word of God, we've got to memorize it. It has to saturate our being. You say God doesn't talk back to me. How can I have a dialogue with God? You're not reading and studying the word of God. Get it in your heart. And then when you pray, Lord, I'm struggling. 
I don't know what to do. He'll say, my mercy never fails you. And when you say, Lord, I'm selfish, he'll remind you of the needs of others. The word of God is living. He's speaking to you. Are you listening? That's how Jesus prayed. He prayed in conversation. He wasn't just praying to try to change things. Prayer to him was about relationship. Does God not teach us to ask? Of course he does. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. James says, you do not receive because you do not ask. Why don't we talk to God? Why are we so busy? Why do we crowd him out? Now, however long you live, I doubt you'll be sitting on your... I wish I'd gone to the gym on September the 12th, 2022. I hate that I missed that school board meeting. I wish I hadn't let my grass get two feet high in the front lawn. I wish I'd gone to the dentist every six months. You might think that a couple times. But the overruling thought will not be about these ordinary mundane things. But you might regret that all the times God invited you to pray, you wouldn't talk to him. He invites you to pray, so pray to him. But only if you're a child of God. See, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 29. Is your heart right with God? If it is, you have this wonderful privilege. If it isn't, God will make your heart right through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. He is pleading with you through his word today. That word that is alive, that is abounding, is saying to your heart, Come, be my child. Enter into a covenant relationship with me. I will be your father. You can be my son or you can be my daughter. And we can have this relationship and walk together. Have you obeyed the gospel? Do you need to correct something in your life? We're going to sing an invitation song. If we can encourage you to come and make your life right with God this morning, come now as we stand together and as we sing.